Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trials stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On our last episode, we examined the first part of the opening statement by one of Travis McMichael's defense attorneys, Bob Rubin. We ended the episode as Rubin's narrative arrived at the day that Mr. Arbery was killed. On today's episode, we will examine the conclusion of Rubin's opening, and then we will bring in our consulting producer, Paul Butler, for his take on Rubin's efforts to define key legal principles for the jury. That's all coming up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the first half of his opening, Travis McMichael's attorney, Bob Rubin, appeared to pursue a strategy of conditioning the jurors to feel the atmosphere of fear and suspicion that he says existed in the Satilla Shores neighborhood on the day that Ahmad Arbery was killed. He also cast doubt on assertions that Mr. Arbery was jogging in the Satilla Shores neighborhood on that day. He used phrases like, quote, plundering around, end quote, and quote, breaking in, end quote, to describe Mr. Arbery's actions. He conjured up images of a possible tragic middle-of-the-night encounter between a vulnerable white woman and a shirtless black man with tattoos and hair twists. As he begins the second half of his opening, Reuben appears to seek to establish Travis McMichael's mindset by using the language that McMichael chose to hear and the alleged facts that he chose to believe. He knows stuff has been stolen because Larry English has told everybody that. He knows this guy has the audacity to go in the house despite knowing people are around and watching him. He knows he's possibly armed because he made that move to his left-hand pocket, waist. He has probable cause to believe a burglary has been committed. What is burglary? Burglary is entering a dwelling, whether occupied or not, The fact that it's open without doors means nothing. It's any dwelling, any building, structure, whether occupied or not, without authority, with the intent to commit a felony or theft. You don't actually, to commit a burglary, have to take anything. It is the intent to take something or to commit another felony that makes it a burglary. Travis McMichael has probable cause based on his training of what probable cause is, to believe Ahmad Arbery is a burglar. Probable cause, what does it mean? It is the level of suspicion. Objection. I have an objection at this point in time to this being the law and the law is gonna come from the court. And this has not been, how about, how about I put this, approved on any level by the court. Well, let me make it clear. This is what Travis McMichael understood from his training was the definition of probable cause. Ladies and gentlemen, as I indicated to you, the court will actually charge you on the law. 
during the presentation here, uh, the representation is made on what the law is. Again, the court, you will, you will receive that from the court. You will not be receiving that from counsel. So if we could please couch the argument in those terms. And this is not what I understand probable cause to be. This is what Travis McMichael from his 10 years in the Coast Guard understands probable cause to be. The level of suspicion that would cause a reasonable and prudent person to believe that a crime has been committed under the totality of the circumstances. That's it. That's where Travis McMichael sat as of February 11th, 2020. Here, defense attorney Rubin begins his effort to condition the jurors for his preferred interpretations of key legal language and concepts that the judge will present to them in his instructions before they begin their deliberations. As he moves into his narrative of the day that Ahmad Arbery was shot, Rubin redoubles his efforts to paint Travis McMichael's mindset as perfectly reasonable to anyone who could imagine the atmosphere in the white middle-class Satilla Shores neighborhood in February of 2020. The next time we see Ahmad Arbery in Satilla Shores is February 23rd. It's a beautiful day, kind of a warm February day in Brunswick. Travis McMichael, around midday, around one o'clock, is on the couch in his living room, trying to get Everett to take a nap, three-year-old son. So he's doing the strategies that parents do. Greg is in the front yard, in the driveway, reupholstering his boat cushions. While they're doing that, Ahmad Arbery is walking into the neighborhood, not jogging, not running, walking into the neighborhood, walking into Larry English's front yard. The evidentiary basis is not yet clear for Bob Rubin's assertion that Ahmaud Arbery walked into Satilla Shores on February 23, 2020. If it proves to be true, it could cut both ways. The prosecution could argue that many people intermittently jog and walk, and that Mr. Arbery's unhurried pace might suggest a benign intent where he stands there, and this is the view from Ronnie Olson's house across the street, where he stands there, looks around, and walks into the house. While he's doing that, Matt Albenzi is in his yard, down Jones. He sees this guy that looks like the guy from the video clips. He grabs his gun, puts it in his pocket, grabs his cell phone, walks down Jones to an oak tree, across the street from Larry Inch's house. And he calls 911. So he's calling the police. He makes, he believes, eye contact with Ahmaud Arbery. The next thing he sees is Ahmaud Arbery sprint out of that house. He is not jogging. He is running away into the neighborhood, possibly armed, based on prior experience. He is sprinting at what turns out to be about a six minute mile. It's fast and he's got long strides. Ruben is showing the jury surveillance video that captures Mr. Arbery's actions. His six minute mile pace is not extraordinary for a good long distance runner. It is by no means a sprint. Bob Rubin nevertheless adopts Greg McMichael's characterization of Mr. Arbery as, quote, hauling ass, end quote. He runs right past Greg McMichael's yard. Greg McMichael sees him. Greg McMichael is aware of the things that have happened that we've talked about. 
Greg McMichael sees him tearing, hauling ass down the road, and he knows what's up. And he goes inside and he tells Travis, Travis, the guy, the guy's running down the street. The guy. They know who it is. They're not guessing. It's not some random guy running down the street. It's the guy. And they turn out to be right. It is the guy, the same guy four previous times at night. They grab their guns. Now, why did Travis McMichael grab his shotgun? Because 12 days earlier, he confronts this guy, trying to help Larry English, and this guy reaches into his pocket like he has a gun. So he grabs his shotgun for self-protection. Again, Rubin weaves a narrative that suggests implicit threat while ignoring facts that run counter to that narrative. And he gets in the car, Ford F-150, and climbs into the car seat because when seconds count, the police are often minutes away. They're there to detain Ahmad Arbery for the police. This is what the law allows. A private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or immediate knowledge. And that applies to felonies or misdemeanors. But there's a second sentence the state didn't tell you about. The second sentence is, if the offense is a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. That's why Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael sought to detain Ahmaud Arbery. It, there was no crime committed in their presence. We're not contending there was a crime committed in their presence. But there was probable cause to believe a felony had been committed and that this man was attempting to escape or flee. That's why citizen's arrest is in this case. This case is likely to boil down to whether this jury deems defense attorney Bob Rubin's statements here as reasonable. He says that they are not contending that there was a crime committed in the McMichael's presence, but that there was probable cause for them to believe a felony had been committed and that Arbery was attempting to escape or flee. There are three encounters with Ahmad Arbery on Burford. The first one is in front of Roddy Bryan's house, William R. Bryan. Travis McMichael pulls up alongside Ahmad Arbery and says, stop, whoa. I want to talk to you. What were you doing back there? What's going on? And Ahmad Arbery says, zero. He doesn't say, hey man, I'm just out for a jog. He doesn't say, hey, leave me alone. He doesn't say, back off. He doesn't say, hey, calm. He doesn't say anything. He just looks at Travis and he goes back the other way. Travis backs his truck up. He says, whoa, 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 stop. I'm going to talk to you. Ahmad Arbery looks at him and bolts doesn't say anything, doesn't say, leave me alone, doesn't say, hey, good morning, good afternoon, he just bolts. At this time, there is no gun. The shotgun that Travis bought is, is, is stuck between his seats. Greg's gun is on his holster. There's no gun being pointed at Mr. Arbery. There's no like, hey, stop at the point of a pistol or a, or a shotgun. There's no gun. Mr. Arbery's not even aware of any gun at that point because no gun has been shown. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Rubin goes on to describe the McMichaels' pursuit with the same basic facts that prosecutor Linda Dunikowski laid out. His story includes the pause in their pursuit where Greg McMichael got out of the cab of the pickup and into its bed, and Travis McMichael heading away from Mr. Arbery and William Bryan with the intention of looping around and blocking Mr. Arbery's exit from the Satilla Shores neighborhood. Rubin's narrative puts an emphasis on the McMichaels telling Mr. Arbery that the police are coming and Mr. Arbery's non-responsiveness. He makes no mention of Greg McMichael's statement that they had Mr. Arbery trapped like a rat or his demand of Mr. Arbery, quote, stop or I'll blow your fucking head off, end quote. We pick up Rubin's chronology of the events of February 23rd, with Travis McMichael successfully finding Mr. Arbery again after looping around the neighborhood to block his possible exit. Once he sees Mr. Arbery, Rubin says, Travis McMichael stops his truck. That's why he stops. While he stopped there, gets out of his truck, Greg is still in the bed, and they see him at Arbery coming out. And Travis is like, whoa, stop, stop, whoa, 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 stop. And Ahmaud Arbery keeps running at him. Travis keeps yelling, stop, stop, stop. And then he reaches into his car and he sees Ahmaud Arbery flip and go back around the dog lake. Travis is gone and his cell phone. He says, dad, when are the police getting here? He says, I didn't call 911. Travis dials 911 and gives his dad his phone. And that's why we have a 911 call, because Travis McMichael had his phone and thought to call the police. Where are they? It's before the first shot is fired. They call the police. That is not evidence of an intent to murder. In Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's opening, she suggested that the first shot was fired contemporaneously with the 911 call. And she seemed to suggest that Travis McMichael formed his malicious intent when Mr. Arbery would not comply with his demands to surrender. While Travis is out there, now he has his gun for protection because this guy has run at him, has acted bizarrely, has not said a word yet that he could tell. And now Ahmad Arbery's running back. Travis's training taught him to show a weapon, not to use a weapon, to show a weapon, because that is a way to de-escalate violence. In the normal situation, you show someone you have a weapon, you get compliance. You don't need to go any further. And so he stands there at the low ready position, not pointing his weapon, and Ahmad Arbery is running. And he's running at Travis McMichael. Stop, stop, get down, stop. And this guy is not stopping. And Travis knows that this guy is not gonna stop. He's not predictable. He's gonna be on him in seconds. And yes, at about 20 yards, he raises the weapon because he knows Ahmad Arbery can be on him and he's hoping that by raising the weapon, he will de-escalate the situation. Who's going to attack a guy 
pointing a shotgun. If he wanted to kill him, that was an open shot. He didn't shoot. He didn't shoot his weapon. He was trying to de-escalate the situation in compliance with his nine years of training in the Coast Guard, same training police officers get. Bob Rubin's statements will likely stand in stark contrast to the prosecution's anticipated assertions that Travis McMichael's actions were not an ordinary part of law enforcement organizations' de-escalation training. In her opening, Prosecutor Dunikowski said the evidence will show that Travis McMichael was moving in Mr. Arbery's direction and pointing the gun at him before Mr. Arbery turned to confront McMichael. Dunikowski will also remind the jurors of Greg McMichael's admissions that they sought to trap Mr. Arbery like a rat and threatened to blow his, quote, fucking head off, end quote. It will be up to the jury to weigh these narratives against each other. So he fires, he pulls down the weapon, trying to get it away because Amount Arbery's not stopped. That gunshot, which he knows was near his chest, at least he believes it, in this, in this melee, he pulls it down, he pulls it back because Arbery is rushing him, pulls it down, he fires another shot off frame. You see smoke, you see something spray, and you see Amount Arbery swinging wildly. And he's hitting Travis, you see him hit, with his right hand into Travis's head neck. He is pounding Travis McMichael while Travis is trying to get the gun away. And Travis fires two more times and you've seen that. It's a horrible, horrible video. And it's tragic. It's tragic that Ahmad Arbery lost his life. But at that point, Travis McMichael is acting in self-defense. He did not want to encounter Ahmad Arbery physically. He was only trying to stop him for the police. Self-defense is defined, and the court will charge you later. Your Honor, I'm objecting again. Mr. Ruby is now giving them the law in self-defense. So we, we are allowed to give a law in opening statement, just as the state did in its opening statement. But we need to be very clear, because, again, we haven't gone through a charge conference in this case. So let's be clear about it, that this is not the charge. I expect you'll be charged on self-defense. And I expect this is what you'll be called. Be charged, be told by the judge. A person is justified in using force which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm only if he reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent death or great bodily injury to himself or to a third person. Travis McMichael, within seconds, encounters the police. Officer Minshew... Officer Duggan, they arrive on scene. He cooperates fully. He does whatever they tell him to do. When they say speak, he speaks. When they say don't speak, he doesn't speak. Cooperates fully. He's distraught. He's upset. You'll see this on the video, the body cam of the officers. There's no glee at having done what he just did. It's awful. He's covered in blood. Ahmad Arbery's blood. And then they take him down to the station and he cooperates fully with the police and answers every question. When they tell him to write a map of where he went, he tries to write a map of where they went when they encountered each other on Burford and, and, and Holmes. And when they ask him to write a statement, he does his best to write out everything he knows to tell the police. There's been a lot written about this case and Travis McMichael's actions. 
<clears throat> doesn't matter. What matters now is the evidence that you're going to hear, the facts that you're going to hear, and the law that you're going to be given by Judge Walmsley. You are now the judges of the facts and the applicators of the law in this case. The evidence shows overwhelmingly that Travis McMichael honestly and lawfully attempted to detain Ahmaud Arbery according to the law and shot and killed him in self-defense. What we're asking you to do is hard and it may be unpopular, but we're asking you to recognize your responsibility as jurors and being open to the facts and putting aside emotion and listening to the law and applying that and doing your duty because we think the only right verdict is not guilty on each and every count in this indictment. Thank you. It bears mentioning that at no time did Bob Rubin warn the jury that his client, Travis McMichael, was reported by his co-defendant, William Bryan, as standing over Mr. Arbery's body and saying, fucking N-word. Joining us to discuss the conclusion of Bob Rubin's opening is Georgetown Law Professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. Paul Butler, thanks again for being with us. Hey, Carrie, it's great to be here. In laying out the various laws that he says the evidence will show exonerate his client, he focused on a few phrases. He focused on the word probable cause. He focused on the words self-defense. And in doing so, he was trying to define his client's actions as reasonable and within the bounds of Georgia law. Is that a permitted aspect of an opening statement? And what did you think of the way the judge handled the prosecution's objections to Mr. Rubin's efforts to define those legal concepts? Travis McMichael's defense attorney has to establish for the jury two main points. The first is that under Georgia law, Travis McMichael, along with his father, Mr. Bryant, had a legal right to conduct a citizen's arrest of Mr. Arbery. And the second item that must be established if Travis McMichael is to be found not guilty is that he killed Mr. Arbery in self-defense, that Mr. Travis McMichael was justified in doing so because he reasonably feared for his own life. And appropriately, the opening statement from Mr. Rubin hits on both of those points. So it starts with the jury being told that Mr. McMichael was a boarding officer in the United States Coast Guard, which gave him the authorization to make arrests. And according to the defense attorney, Travis McMichael received training. The idea is to establish that Travis wasn't just an ordinary citizen trying to make an arrest. Travis was a person who was steeped in law enforcement. There's a constitutional requirement for arrest. The old Georgia citizen arrest law uses uh, a vaguer phrase like reasonable and probable suspicion. 
And that sounds more like the constitutional standard for a stop and frisk. That's a lower standard than for arrest. And Travis McMichael's lawyer wants to make it clear to the jury that the probable cause standard was met in this case and that uh, Travis McMichael was aware of that standard. So he operated within the meaning of both the Georgia law and the Constitution. And after establishing that, at least making an argument that that's what the evidence will show, the opening statement then focused on why it was reasonable for Travis to believe that he faced a deadly threat from Mr. Arbery. Paul Butler, thanks again for your time today. It's always a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us in our next episode as we examine defense attorney Franklin Hoag's opening statement to the jury on behalf of his client, Greg McMichael. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was written by Art Montrostelli. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.